Hello, everyone. It's April 17th, 2019. Tiger Woods has won the Masters. Notre Dame Cathedral has burned. Chris Davis has snapped his 0 for 54 streak with three hits in the same game. And two American men have run sub 210 in the marathon. What a crazy weekend of sports. Is the world ending? We're going to discuss that this week on the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. This is your fearless host, Let's Run's Robert Johnson. Very excited to be here, guys. I'm joined by, of course, my twin brother and fellow co-founder, Weldon Johnson, as well as Let's Run.com's ace staff writer, Jonathan Galt. But guys, I'm thrilled to be here. First of all, the world has been crazy the last week. Secondly, I have just finished my fasting for the Health IQ blood test to try to get life insurance for my child. Everything has gone well. I've been fasting. I had to fast last night. I've been trying to eat healthy to, to game the test so I could pass as a fit runner, even though I haven't been running very much. So glad to be here, guys. Good to be here as well, Robert. Do you really have no fears? You always say you're fearless. You're not afraid of anything. I have plenty of fears. I just don't want to admit them to a nationwide, international audience, actually. Folks, if you want to reach us, you can, of course, call in. Unlike Facebook and Google, you can reach a real human being. Call 844, pick up the phone, 844 844- Let's run. It's 844-538-7786. And we're going to have some listener audio later in the show. But guys, you guys were in Boston. I'll let you take over here. I'm actually a little lightheaded from not eating this morning. And then I tried to jam in all the fast food. So on the way home, right before this podcast, I had two sausage McMuffins, one large Coke, all from Mickey D's. Uh, But it was a little too much, I think, to pump the blood sugar up. Wow, Robert. If you actually are a fit runner, you can save, like Eric, our web guy, is going to save up to $19,000 on his life insurance over 30 years because he runs. So go to letsrun.com slash health IQ for more info. Robert, you should have had him come to your house and do the blood test. It's been much easier. Wouldn't have had the temptation to stop at McDonald's on the way after. It was an emotional morning, too, because they had me down and listed as a smoker in my 30s. I told the guy that I had like a few cigarettes at a wedding, you know, occasionally like every three or four years or something. Somehow that was listed as I was a smoker. So the question they actually ask you is, do you smoke? You should say no, unless you're a smoker, then you say yes, but I'm not a smoker. Have I had a cigarette? Yes, I have. And I'm ashamed to admit it. Jonathan Galt has never had one. John, we're proud of you. You're representing that, but let's run.com ideal. I didn't realize that you remember that stat, Robert, but it is still true. I've never had a cigarette, no plans to have one, but enough about our smoking habits. Let's talk about Boston Marathon 2019. There were some great races. I mean, the men's race was an all-time classic. You had Lawrence Trono and two-time champion Lalisa DeCisa battling down Boylston Street. They were in an all-out sprint for about 100 meters to go with Trono prevailing just at the line. The finishing margin was two seconds officially, but it did seem closer than that because DeCisa led up just a little bit before the line when he realized he was beaten. But Really, marathoning doesn't get better than that. Two guys duking it out. So that was awesome. And in the women's race, White Nash together, making she, she was fearless, Robert. If you want to know fearless, that was White Nash together, Defa taking off at four miles, making a huge gap on the field. She got it up to two minute, 59 second lead by 30K. And then Edna Kiplagat did make a late charge, the 2017 champion. It was very similar to the move she actually pulled in 2017 to pull away from the field. But she could not quite get there. Degeffa holds on to win her first major in two two twenty three, and she won by forty two seconds. So that was quite a day of marathoning. Weldon, what were your what were your takeaways from the race? Well, John, let me interrupt here. You called Gadefa fearless. I would call it stupid, but it worked out in the end. 
Hey, fearless and stupid are often the same thing. My takeaways, sure, we're going to talk about the Americans. Two guys under sub-210, Jordan to say third place. But let's focus first, you know, give the attention where it should be, and that's on the winners first. And, John, you talked about a two-way battle down Boylston Street. Kenneth Kipkamoy was right there as well for probably halfway down Boylston. So it was a three-way battle, just a tremendous race on the men's side. And you don't see finishes like that before. Sometimes you see two guys kind of duking it out, but I've never seen three that close. Or if I have, I've forgotten it. So the beauty of not having the world's best memory. I just thought it was a tremendous foot race. And that's what you get a lot of times in Boston. There's just suspense, drama. You don't know what's going to happen. Even the women's race... You know, Degeffa gets so far ahead. She has a two minute and 59 second lead, I think, at 30K. And we're like, well, she's not done with the hills yet. She's got to finish Heartbreak Hill and make it to the finish. And we're sort of calculating, okay, she can lose almost 20, 20 seconds a mile all the way in. But we're like, well, if she really craters, she, she could lose a minute a mile, no problem, a couple miles. So there's still always a little drama in Boston there. And. And the crazy thing was the never really slowed that much. He was running five thirty miles, but um, which is kind of nuts. I don't know that we were sort of even contemplating that one, that it was close because she ends up winning by 42 seconds, but Kipplegott was just sprinting like a mad woman, you know, down the heartbreak Hill all the way, you know, the last five miles are pretty much downhill to the finish. So just great. It was a great Boston marathon. It usually is. I really enjoyed the women's race. And I mean, when she took off, I, I, I was just thinking as a former coach, that, like, why would you do this? Like, and I think she said afterwards that she didn't think she, if she ran that slow, she would make it to the finish or something. Cause it's going to take longer. That doesn't make sense to me, but it's, if you're feeling good and it's too easy, just wait. There's no reason to go that early, but it makes it more exciting. But I was very worried that she was going to sort of not hold up. I mean, I was, I was debating to myself if the race had been one mile longer, would she have lost? And I think there's a, decent chance she would have um you know and, and the, the the thing that was sort of and i don't know there, there was drama there and, and one of the things that was interesting to me was i was watching the race here in, in baltimore on two different channels at once so i had nbc gold which was the international broadcast ad free with larry ross and al troutwig on my computer and then i had the nbcsn broadcast with carrie tolleson craig masbach and um paul swangard paul swangard and it was fascinating. I, I had to have both on because basically both were almost unwatchable. So if you had both on, you could sort of flip back and forth. Um, and I'm not really saying that to be critical of them. As a fellow broadcaster, I, th- I think for the most part, a lot of the, them do a, a pretty good job. Um, but just they have four races going on at once with the wheelchair races, which they give way more attention in Boston than other places. But it was interesting. In the women's race, NBCSM was like, anointing the guffa as the champion while NBC goal was like worried she was going to blow up. So it really sort of was interesting to me. Like I'm like, these people are watching the same race and having two totally different conclusions on it. So, you know, and I, I think that, I don't know. That's why to me, the marathoning, the stats are so important. The storytelling is important. You need to tell the viewer like what's going on because, you know, just looking at it, it's hard. It's hard to say real, really, if, if you're not really paying a lot of attention to it. Um, and to me, there was some drama there as to whether she, she, she would lose that. But Weldon says that he doesn't remember a race that close. I have gone back and done the research and John had mentioned this in, in our men's recap that it was the closest finish since 2000. So I went back and watched the 2000 finish, 
where the two top two finishers, Elijah Lagat and Gezahinga Berra, were given the same time. And I've determined it was a great race. It was actually very similar to this year's race. And Weldon, the weird thing is, in 2000, we were in Flagstaff training for the Olympic trials. You'd think we would have watched that race live on ESPN if it was on ESPN. It was definitely on ESPN International because I watched it in Spanish. So I don't know. I don't remember watching this race, though, until today or actually last night. But it was a fascinating race. 70 seconds from the finish line, you had the top three. That was also included Moses Tanui. Side by side, three abreast, just like this year's race. This year's race, they were side by side, farther apart. It was like 700 meters away versus like probably just under 400 meters away. But in that race, the finish, even though they said they, they gave them the, the, the top two at the same winning time, I would argue this year's finish was better in the final 100 meters. In that race, 28 seconds from the finish line, Legat took the lead and he never gave it up. I mean, there was really no doubt in my mind that he was going to win. I don't know how they were given the same finish time. It looked to me about the same distance as this year's race. But Legat actually went from third to first. So that was pretty interesting. And Moses Tanui had the lead. It was kind of like this year's race, like Decisa. You don't want to have the lead. If I was coaching someone, you don't want to have the lead. It'd weigh down. Just wait, 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 and then go Well, late. Robert, you got to remember what he did in New York. He took the lead with a late kick going past Joffrey Camworor, and it was a similar situation. It was very close. He won New York in the fall by two seconds over Shira Katata, and the reason he won is because Katata couldn't make up the gap by the finish line. So if I was Decisa, I'm thinking back to that win. That was his winning strategy. Why not try it again? He tried to break uh, Lawrence Toronto and couldn't do it. I don't think he made a mistake tactically. But he came from behind in New York, right? Camor had the lead. Yeah, but the third place guy almost caught him. So oh, he's yeah. probably factoring in. The third guy makes it different. If it's two guys, yeah, maybe you just wait and you're confident you don't kick him. But as John pointed out, New York was pretty unique in that he pulled away from Camor and then the third place guy, Katata, sort of almost tracked him down. Oh, yeah. You guys are making some good points. But I'm going to put up both videos in the week that was. It should be published hopefully later today. But it's really interesting to watch, to compare these two. Um, The finish, I tried to time the last 600 when they make that left-hand turn. They say it's roughly 600, but I don't think it's exactly 600 because the finish this year was in one – in 2000 took 133. And then this year it was significantly faster – depending on how you look at it, I think there was two camera angles. So it's weird. You see them turn left twice this year on the broadcast. I I want some video expert to tell me it's like, there's a Pruder film. It doesn't make sense to me. Like they turn left and then you see them turn left again. So I think they're switching from the overhead camera to the stage to the motorcycle camera, but I don't understand which clock I should go off of. Like which one do they switch back or anyways, I I had it is at least three seconds faster for that final 130, I had 130 on one one time I watched it, and then 128 on the other time I watched it. So, not a surprise. The finish was faster this year, and also the finishing time of 207.57 was faster than 2000, 209.47. So, it shows you marathon has come a long ways in 19 years. I mean, when I looked at the runners from 2000, to me, they look kind of fat. I mean, compared, <laughs> it's hard to say, but... Um, Really, it was a fantastic race. My only complaint was sort of the camera angle. It was hard to view, right? It was sort of out of focus. Um, well, no, the biggest problem is they had the head-on angle yeah. as they're coming towards the finish. And you need to know what the gaps are. The beautiful thing about the track, you know, running on the track, you can have the side-on angle. And I maybe that's something that doesn't always come to play in the Boston Marathon because you're not always getting a close finish. But 
watching in the press room, I know me and some of the other journalists were frustrated because you couldn't tell how far behind Toronto was relative to DeCisa. And then at the very end, it became apparent they were level neck and neck, but that was only apparent quite late. So I'm sure it was frustrating. It was frustrating for me. I'm sure it must have been frustrating for viewers as well. And the lack of excitement also in some of the commentary. One of them, I forgot which one, was just like sort of, I'm like, hello, we have three people sprinting a 600 for the win. Like, we should be really excited about this. So it was a great finish. And I was just sort of thinking about this. Like, Luisa DeCisa, he won Boston in 2013. He comes back the year after the bombing, wins, you know, in 2015. He wins New York last year in 205. Just think about, like, if this guy's name was like Bill Rogers or something like that. Like, he would be a household name in Boston. People, people would be like, Oh my God, he just barely lost this year. It's just sort of crazy how, you know, because he's Ethiopian, doesn't speak that good of English, maybe because he's black. I mean, I don't think there's necessarily a need to go there, but just, I don't know, circumstances, familiarity in sports determine how these guys, how relatable they are, how popular they are. But, you know, he's an amazing athlete and he just gave, he gave it his, all you know like with about what i don't know in the last hundred he flails out his arms trying to hold him off and then someone just again keeps kicking and it just looked like he wasn't good enough to sort of hold off Toronto, and he really wasn't and then he was just sort of dead you know like 10 meters before the finish he's like that's it i'm done so great battle for sure you make a good point. Well, then one of the unofficial rules I've tried to adopt in the last like month, or maybe it's my 2019 resolution is sort of try to think about these things. Like if an American did this, you know, how would we be reacting? And I think that's a good th- rule to have for the sport I and mean, people would be going crazy, you know, and even if it was mad, I don't really think it's a racial thing. I think it's more of the English and stuff like that. Um, but you know, he is amazingly consistent in Boston for the most part. And think about the drama. I mean, I, I, I what I what noticed to me is like he gave it his all, and then you give it your all, and it's just not enough. Like that's oh, it's so frustrating. It's like it's just kind of like oh, he's, you want to do it, you want to do it, you do it, and then you don't do it. And it's like when do you crack? And the interesting thing is the amount of money that was on the line there. I mean, it's a hundred and ten thousand dollar difference between first and third, but that's really not even it. I mean, the appearance fees for Toronto for next year are going to be probably another hundred thousand dollars higher than Kip Kamoy's or something like that. So, I mean, Kip Kamoy, who was third, probably lost, you know, 200 grand compared to Toronto. Right. I mean, in terms of appearance fees easily between here and the next year. Yeah. Cause th- those appearance fees for the majors get into six figures, especially if you're a major champion, Boston. And here's the, th- the other thing with Boston, Boston trots out its former champions year after year after year. You have people like, Caroline Rotich and Sharon Cherop and Wesley Correa, who haven't done anything for years, and they're still getting checks to show up and run Boston every year. So, Chirono, even if he's not that great five years from now, Boston will probably give him a nice little check to show up and run their race. So, the residuals there, I, I think Chirono is so good that he's going to be on the top of his game for a few more years, but even when he's washed up, he might be able to get a few more checks from John Hancock. Yeah, it's like the Masters, except they're actually paying them to come back and run the race. Like Wesley Career, Boston this year, he's not running for free, right? I, don't, I have no idea how much money it is. At this point, it can't be much. But you're forever known as the Boston Marathon champion, and it's you know pretty cool that, that they 
I don't know that they treat them that way. Even Des Linden was saying prior to the race, I'm always going to be part of the Boston community now as a champion, you know, sure. If, if she was just known as coming close in 2011, she'd be known as part of the Boston community, but it's not the same thing. She can always go back as a champion. The champions are all there at the, even like, you know, Bill Rogers is there. Meb is there. They're all brought in by John Hancock for the elite media press conference. So who knows? Maybe what, 50 years from now, we'll see Lawrence Toronto back in Boston. Yeah. And, and I loved, I mean, look, first of all, let's give credit to how good, I mean, this is only his second major. He got seventh in London, but he went out crazy fast last year, but like how consistent this guy's been. I mean, first or second, except for that London performance in all one, two, his last nine marathons. So nine of his last 10 marathons counting London, he's been first or second. Now, some of those were like Hong Kong and Prague, but he he won Honolulu twice. He's won Amsterdam twice in that time frame. Course records in both of those races in Amsterdam and Honolulu, two course records each. 2016, he ended it with my winning in Honolulu. 2017, second in Rotterdam, first in Amsterdam, first in Honolulu. Last year, seventh in London, first in Amsterdam, now first in Boston. So he's won four of his last five marathons. I mean, really, really impressive. But what I loved, and I wanted to put this, this will definitely be the quote of the week that wasn't quote of the day. I thought about making this quote of the day yesterday was how honest he was. He wins the sprint finish over a guy who's just won the New York city marathon and sprint finish. And they said, Hey Lawrence, did you think you were going to win that race coming down home? He said, quote, not really, because personally I'm sorry for saying this, but to me, I am poor at finishing races. So I love this because you always think, Oh, it's the mind of the champion. No, it's the fitness the same when Weldon was a crappy Ivy League runner who couldn't get higher than fifth in the 10,000 meters. It was the same person that was clutch at USA's getting fourth professionally in the 2001 and 2003 USA 10,000 meter champions. And it was a mental weakling, ended up being mentally strong, but really he was just physically fit. So it really helps if you're fit. And um, I'm not saying that the mental side doesn't have anything to do with it, but I, I just love that quote to me because it blows all this sort of stuff you these mantras you hear on sports radio and sports shows that I don't necessarily think are necessarily true. Thank you for comparing me to Lawrence Toronto, Robert. You're welcome. Yeah, I'm also comparing my genetics. Even if my well, that's the big years. question here, Robert and Weldon. You have the same genetics, and Weldon had a better career, so that you know. You can't really go down to uh, talent level on that one, Robert. What's your excuse there? Well, again, Weldon was uh, – this may sound counterintuitive, folks, but Weldon was lazy in high school, early in our high school career. Weldon was – we had a kid move into our, our grade. He repeated a grade so he could kick Weldon's butt in, in, in track and field. Eric, if you're listening, you cheat. And Weldon got a little discouraged. Weldon was used to being the, the, the top guy in our grade, and instead he was only number two, so he didn't train that hard. So I trained more than him, but I got a bunch of stress fractures. Weldon was lazy, and that actually helped him because then he progressed in a reasonable manner each year in his mileage. And, you know, became better than me. And then once you, once you become good, all the girls you get in college for being a cross country runner. I mean, obviously he's going to, it's hard, it's hard to keep up, catch up. Clearly Robert did not run cross country in college. All right. Should we turn to the American performances in Boston? Because they're getting a lot of buzz, a lot of attention. Finally, the sub two ten barrier is over. Non-RUP division. We always have to use that caveat. RUP is to the American men's marathoning. What Ellie Kipchoge is to the world's marathoning. Just a level above. 
Yes, it's true. So I don't know how many days it was, but an American man not named Galen Rupp had not run sub 210 since... Meb Kofleski, 2014 Boston Marathon. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> Meb was winning Boston. And an American-born man hadn't done it since Dathan Ritzstein, October 13, 2013. And I do know how many days it was. It was 2,010 days. That's a lot. That is a lot. And that's crazy. 210, it's a good marathon, but it's not good internationally anymore. It's, not, it's like just dime a dozen. It's pretty nuts. But we had Scott Fobel, Fobel and Jared Ward both going sub 210. Fobel, seventh place, 209.09. And Ward, eighth place, 209.25. And Ward can thank Festus Talam for letting up right before the finish because Ward, Jared just sneaked ahead of him for an eighth place there. Yeah, I felt bad for Festus. That cost him like $1,500. Like Boston, I think needs to do a better job of marking where the finish line is. They have clocks before the finish line. Did anyone notice that? Like he wasn't leaning. He didn't. I think he thought he already finished. Robert, they have a big yellow line on the ground that says finish. That to me is pretty clear. Oh, okay. Well, I just saw the overhead camera angle. I sort of agreed, Robert. I wasn't sure looking at him. Like which of these is the finish? Maybe it's clear if you're running, but for some of the overhead cameras, I was like, I'm not sure he knows which one. Watching on TV, it was not clear. I'll tell you that much. Well, I I gotta say. Credit to Scott Fobble and Jared Ward. Those were two big-time runs. They were both talking, especially Jared was saying how he was in really good shape, how 209 was a big goal of his. He wanted to do it. And the conditions were pretty good for marathoning on Monday. I thought if one of them didn't do it on Monday, they weren't going to have many excuses. Yes, Boston can be tough, but also if you run it the right way, you can be pretty fast. Ben Rosario, who's Fobble's coach, said after the race that he would probably say it was about as fast as Chicago the way they ran it on, or he would have expected Scott to run a similar time in Chicago, I think based on the conditions in Boston on Monday. So if someone didn't break 210, I don't think there was going to be a lot of excuses, but we don't have to worry about that now. Both Fobble and Ward did it. I think both of them, this was a huge run for them. But if you look at J- what Jared's done in the past, sixth place in the Olympics, him and Ed Eyestone had essentially hit his coach, Ed Eyestone, also the coach of Brigham Young of the cross country team was saying, we thought that, based on what he's accomplished, you know, making the Olympic team in 2016 and then placing six in the Olympics, that a sub 210 was very possible. He just hadn't gotten in the right race. And I think that's fair because last year, from in 2017, he had been injured a lot and wasn't really at his best. And then last year in New York, he got sixth place, I believe, at 212. So Boston this year, the conditions were good and he, he delivered. And Farble, I think we knew he wasn't that far behind ward in new york he was only four seconds back so if jared was going to be able to do something special in boston scott would have a chance and scott turned out doing something even more special he beat jared big runs for both of those guys and i think to me looking ahead a little bit now about 10 months to the olympic trials but i think you have to say the three favorites to make the team are galen rupp scott fallwell and jared ward in part because fallwell and ward are the only guys right now with the olympic standard and that might be hard to get for some of the americans moving forward and John had to ruin the podcast by talking about the Olympic standard. I want to interrupt here. We need we need clarification by the IAAF and USATF now. Like by the time London finishes in two weeks, we need to know if they're going to grant the the Olympics trials special. You know, top three automatically go to the Olympics. Other because guys need to make decisions and girls whether they're going to run a fall marathon. And I think if you don't have the have the standard, you have to. Even like Galen Rob, I think he probably could run two eleven thirty on a hilly course in Atlanta, but if it's really hot, if it was 80 degrees, he might not. And 
it just we we need clarification. This needs to be decided now. We don't need to be. They, they already announced the Olympic qualifying standard after the year started, which doesn't make any sense to me. So we need to know this soon. But I agree with you. I mean, obviously, those three guys are the favorites now. But you know, I really wish you know if you haven't heard, Chris Derrick just pulled out. I mean, I was thinking he was capable of running a two hundred nine, certainly in London. And the ADP guys, if any of Scott Simmons, Kenyon Bourne guys move up to the marathon, I think that they could certainly be right in that mix. I don't think that's happening though. Lenny Correa hasn't shown any interest in it. I don't think Shadrach Kipchich is doing it. Not like he has. They have a couple guys. Elkanah Kibet and Augustus Mayo did run the marathon in Boston, and Kibet ran two eleven. I think Mayo ran two twelve. They both p both ran pretty didn't pr Kibet didn't pr. Augustus Mayo did, but neither of them were top 10. Quebec was 11th, so he just missed out. Okay, well, if we're ruining the podcast talking about the Olympic trials, I want to get in a few points. I had a talk with an agent in Boston. It's not Galen Rupp's agent, but the talk essentially was like, will Galen Rupp make the Olympic marathon team? And I told this to John, and John was like, of course he makes the Olympic marathon team. And I'm like, okay, here's the scenario. So currently, as USATF is saying, if you want to make the Olympic team, you have to run under 211.30. That is not an IWAF rule, but USATF said it's going to go off the time standard. The time standard for the Olympic qualifying, automatic time standard is 211.30, and you need that before the Olympic trials in Atlanta. The Olympic trials in Atlanta are being a very difficult course. Well, or top 10 in a major. Let's just jump in there. Remember, that counts as the time standard. Right, or top 10 in a major. Top 10 in a major equals automatic to 1130, essentially. And you don't need it before the Olympic trials. You can get it at the Olympic trials. Right. Or you can get it at the Olympic trials. But the question is, like, on that course, can any American man run under 21130? I asked Ben Rosario what time he thought somebody could run. He said, I think the winning time will be 213. I was like, your guy just ran 209. He goes, I think the winning time will be 213. So with that being said, that means there's one guy capable in America of running 21130 on that course, and that's Galen Rupp, if he's 100% fit. Galen's not running that much right now. So that would essentially would mean this fall he needs to go out to be safe, get fit, and run under 211.30, or be confident that he's 100% fit at the trials. The weather's perfect. Everything goes well. And on a very difficult course, he goes out and do it. So there's all these scenarios that we don't want to happen. The other thing to think about is, so we have two guys who have top 10s at the t- time right now. So maybe a couple others get it this fall. We're going to have five guys that tr- going into the trials we have the automatic standard. The Olympic trials is between them and Galen Rupp. That would be it because no one else will hit the standard. This needs to be changed immediately. And I also heard talk from just somebody indirectly. They're like, oh, I think Max Siegel's going to go meet with Seb Coe. IWF, please make an exception for any country that wants to have, that has like, I don't know, how many qualifiers we have to have? Five or six. We already have five or six automatic qualifiers. Let us pick our top three. And also the other thing would be the USATF could go off of world rankings We'd have more people if we went off the world ranking standard. But the Olympic trials in America on the men's side are going to be completely different than what they were in the past. And also they represent the dreamers, the sub-elite, hoping to make the trials and then maybe sneak through and get the top three and make the Olympics. There's a whole subculture of running built on this. We need this change. We need it fixed. There's my rant. Okay, so I have one interruption. Ben Rosero said the winning time is going to be 213. That counts Rupp? Yeah. I mean, how hilly is this course? I'll play the audio for you. I've talked to enough people and I've looked at the elevation chart and, and some people I really trust, just they just don't see 211.30 happening on that, on that course. So, Scott's run today wouldn't be a 211.30 there? Not according to the people I've talked to. Now, I haven't seen it myself. Yeah, what, do you think the, what do you think the difference would be on 
oh god i mean you know this is enough downhill yeah and you know that was one of the things we did in training was we wanted to be ready not just to handle the downhills but take advantage of the downhills um so on that course with so many ups you know i don't know maybe maybe 213 wins it yeah but i don't know that's what i've heard Okay, there it is. Ben Rosario saying 213 could win the trials. So let's say he's off a little bit. I don't know, 212. Rupp's better than everyone else. He's a couple minutes better than, maybe even more than a couple minutes better than everybody else in his prime. So you'd like to think he could run under 211.30, but let's say his knee injury isn't completely healed. You don't want to have an artificial constraint on who can go to the Olympics. You want the best guys going, and the best guys in America are the top three at the trials. That's how we want it done. That's how our system works. USATF, IWF, the goal of the world rankings is to encourage competition, to encourage the public to watch riveting competitions. So USATF, IWF, figure this out. It's not that hard. Well, doesn't Nike can just pull the strings, aren't they? Isn't it the puppet strings? They control the world and the, all the powers that be, particularly Salazar. But look, I'm going to have John Kellogg. He's an elevation expert. When I ran my 223.13 marathon PR, it was at a Las Vegas course where the first, like, eight to 10 miles or 12 miles or uphill. And then the rest was downhill. And he told me exactly like what my splits would be. You got to run the mar- marathon trials back then. He had to run 525 mile pace. And he's like, you're going to run like 533, 535. Just trust it. It'll come back down. And he was dead on. He knows how much each feet. So if, if we can get Atlanta people to give us an accurate elevation chart, because I was just looking at it. It's got like three hills of like a hundred feet. I mean, Boston's hills basically goes up 200 feet total from like the bo- the bottom when you come down the hill to the very top of the Newton Hills. So I don't think I think 213 is absurd unless it's hot. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. So we, we 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 can we can figure that out. But I I, I agree with you. Like we, the trials, the top three should go to the team. I, I think in the end, most likely the top three probably will have the time or the standard already. But it's just. It's stupid. We don't need to go over this. We don't need to ruin the podcast anymore by talking about this. It's better for marketing, you know, if it's just clear presented top three, go to the team. And Robert, forgetting it's a four loop course. So those three hills times four. I heard there's even talk of taking out a hill at the very end that's possibly on the finish to make the course faster. So people are concerned about this. But let's get back to Boston. The American men, tremendous performance. How about what do you guys think? Are we are we moving? Do we move the goalpost? In the past, you know, the American men aren't either getting top five but not running that fast. And we're like, they, they, all the American men are like, well, we're getting top five. Look how great we're doing. Now they're not top five, but they're under 210. It's like, hey, look how great we are. We're running fast. So is that fair? Is that right? Are we being, are we being too critical? Or do we just try to find ways to praise the American men no matter the performances? No, I think there are some people who are moving the goalposts in this situation, but my goalpost was sub 210. I think that that was a big issue and they didn't do it and now they did it. And I, I agree there are probably some guys who if they'd run all their marathons, if every marathoner in the United States ran like Rotterdam and Amsterdam every year, sorry, every year, I think we would have had some guy under 210 either in 2017 or 2018. But to me, that was a big barrier to shoot, show that they can actually run that fast and they did it. So I'm going to give them credit for that. But I do think it is a little hypocritical of the people who are saying like, oh, look, we're finally running fast. It's like, well, and yes, they were up there through the Newton Hills. Scott was at least. Uh, Jared had been dropped on the Newton Hills, but they both did get smoked. Let's not like pretend that they were in contention to win this race when the racing really got going. They got smoked on the final five miles. And that's not something to be embarrassed by. The guys who win the Boston Marathon are really, really good. But it's sort of what do you want to say? Like American marathoning is back. Well, what define back? Like is back 
you're okay with running 209 and getting top five in majors or is back we want someone up there contending with Galen Rupp to actually win majors because right now the only guy who can realistically win a major for the United States of the United States is Galen Rupp but winning a major is really really hard so I don't think it's necessarily you have to say they need to be contending to win majors to say American marathon- marathoning is quote-unquote back yeah great point well about changing the goalpost I mean what this is the worst in terms of place, the worst showing by an American man, like we haven't had a top five since how many years? 2015 was, sorry, 2016 was the last time we didn't have a guy in the top five, but that was a trials year. So before that, it was 2015. But the whole thing, the top fives never meant anything. Like, like when there's five elite Africans and two of them, or seven elite Africans and two of them drop out, like what does that mean to be top five? I mean, it means you're the best of the rest. Right. You know, it's like your Sarah Sellers if Desi, Desi London drops out last year. So I, I've always thought that people could. I wanted to see the 210 just because it is a barrier. And actually, I love the NBCSN broadcast. The woman that did the broadcast, the post-race interviews, I thought she did a really good job. But I don't think she's an actual runner, but I think that makes some of the questions more interesting. But she's like, Jerry was like, I wanted to break 210. She's like, why? And he's like, well, it's kind of a barrier. But if, if 210 was 209, we wouldn't be talking about it as much. You know what I'm saying? I, I've always thought that a big reason why we've had any 210s recently is because People were running in Boston, which had been bad weather recently. And then New York, a 212 flat in New York is something close to 210 on a flat course. I mean, it's probably 21030. It's good to see it. But yes, this is not, I, I don't think that, I think the reason why everyone's the most excited about it is because the way the race played out. They were in the lead pack. They were in the lead group. That's exciting. Even though, as Ed Eystone said, Jared Ward's coach, really halfway should be considered the 20 mile mark. It's exciting to see them on TV. If those Kenyans had gone out, if Toronto had gone out in 62.30 and had won in 205.30 and we never saw the Americans, people would not be nearly as excited about this. You know, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm glad they did it, but let's don't kid ourselves that these guys are going to be contending for wins at majors at any point in their careers. I think Robert, you're onto something. It makes great television to see Scott up there battling, you know, he was actually dropped at halfway and Jared was ahead of him. And then he keeps fighting, gets back up there. And he was the final one to be dropped. He was with the leaders at 35 K. So that's 4.5 miles from the finish. Pretty much. He loses 72 seconds. That's about 15 seconds a mile. So, but it's just exciting to see them out there. And you just sort of dream like, Oh my God, can they do this? And we've seen the women actually do it. It's just, it's exciting to see them. And that's why I think Boston and New York even sometimes can be better than if you finish two minutes behind in Chicago, you were probably at this point, it's probably equal distant how far behind you are. Whereas in Boston, because of the Hills, the race can be tactical and it just, it makes for better TV. Sometimes Chicago without the Pacers isn't that good, but yes. And let's talk about, that's the perfect segue into the women's race because the really the performance of the weekend from an American was Jordan has say, her third marathon of her career, her first in over a year, and she's her third straight third place finish in a major. If Salisi Sahin is Mr. Silver, Jordan is now officially Mrs. Bronze. But what a showing. But no one really was that excited about it. A, I think because she got dropped early, you didn't see her up front. Um, and B, I mean, she's obviously run faster in the past. But to me, given how poorly her half marathon had gone last week, I thought top five would be good for her. Thought I had some inside info. I guess I was wrong. And then to see her, to me, like she gets third, but then also her post-race comments. She wasn't like Scott Fobble or Jared Ward, happy to be in the lead at the 16-mile mark 
and then blown away. I mean, Millie Jordan wasn't in the lead. She says immediately, I want to run a fall marathon and I want the American record. This is Yomich Kojelcha and Alberto Salazar talk. This is the Nike Oregon Project talk. Put a huge goal out there. Let's hype it up and let's go for it. And the fact that she's talking about that and as talented as she is at the marathon, that has me excited. Um, you know, and I started thread say, let's pump the brakes a little bit because to me, there weren't that many, the women's field wasn't that deep. So third for her wasn't that great. I pointed out on the message board, people called me Jordan to say haters because I started this thread. I'm like, look, two years ago, she ran a faster, faster first half and a faster second half. So she's not quite back to that form. So I wasn't saying she ran a bad race. I'm just pointing out a fact. People are calling me haters. But to me, her post-race comments have me very excited for the future for Jordan to say, if she can stay healthy, though. And that's a big if. That is always the big if with any marathoner, but particularly one who had to scratch her last two marathons last year because of injury problems. Stress fractures is basically the same injury. Stress fractures with women concern me more than they do with men because they're generally related. To, uh, they can be related to bone density, which can be related to your body weight, which is obviously a whole other story that most male marathoners don't really have to worry about. Yeah, and the thing the thing with Hesse though is, like you said, Robert, I talked to her after the race for about ten minutes, and she just viewed this as a stepping stone. Essentially, Not, most people Boston Marathon that is the goal. It's the end all, be all. How you do in Boston defines your year, your career, everything, and. To her, this was just a chance to get back out there, prove she can run a marathon again, which she very much did. And now it's on to bigger and better things. She's thinking about the American record in Chicago. She's thinking about making the team. She's thinking about meddling in Tokyo next year. I got to say, I think she's got a shot at all of those things if she can stay healthy. Now, part of the thing is, though, to get in really good shape, you have to push your body really hard. Jordan is not afraid to push your body really hard. What she needs is people reining her in and making sure that she pushes hard enough to get super fit, but not so hard that she's hurting herself. She thinks she's figured that out at this point, and I'm sure they have a lot of good resources, the Nike Oregon Project. They've put special inserts into her foot to correct correct her stride and make sure that she's not pronating too much or underpronating. I'm not sure which one of the problem one is the problem there. But they're doing everything they can to keep her healthy, and I think it's going to be fascinating. She ran 220.57 in Chicago two years ago. Now, there's still quite a way to get down to Dina Castor level, which is 219.36. She's the only woman ever under 220. But Chicago, if she has some male paces or paces to follow in that race, certainly possible on the right day. But we got to see how our training goes between now and then. Yeah, I thought the biggest thing for Jordan was she's essentially missed a year. And she her one prep race wasn't that great. And she still gets third in the Boston Marathon. And, you know, now now we can nitpick the field, say it wasn't that strong, blah, blah, blah. But she ran strong throughout. She's a born natural born marathoner. I mean, everything she's doing in the marathon is better than everything she does at shorter distances. She was made to run the marathon distance. This showed it again, just this race. And so it's very exciting for the future. I mean, I'm looking here. She ended up a minute and 40 ahead of Des Linden. You know, Des is only, you know, two spots back. So you sort of look at the places like, oh, Des is close to Jordan. Well, actually not that much at the end. So it was a tremendous performance by Jordan. You know, she pretty much was second best from the Chase group, which isn't bad. I mean, Edna Kippel got, was at a whole nother level, but great run. I mean, she's, she's meant to do this. And, and the, the American women are, are just, you know, stronger than the American men, but you need people pushing forward and setting the bar. And that's kind of back back to the men 
I think that's what's exciting about Fabel and Ward is, okay, now the 209's out there. Now those guys are going to start, hey, I can maybe do 208, 207 next time out. And guys like Chris Derrick, who are much faster than – Fabel's a 28-minute 10K guy. I think he can obviously run faster than that. But he's bringing it. He's raised the bar. He's now in that top class of American marathoning. So it is a guy like Derek who's now injured, but see thinking like, wait, I can – I can be able to, I gotta be able to do what he can do. And then Shadrach B. Watt's thinking that and down the line. But Jordan, the American woman, all right, is Jordan say the top American marathoner right now? I say yes. She's better than Des. She's beat Des the two times she's raced her in Boston, 2017 and 2019. Shalane Flanagan is not healthy. She was the top Shalane was the top American in New York last year, and she won New York the year before, obviously. But She's not healthy. She's talking about how she might need knee surgery. We don't know if Chalene Flanagan will race a marathon ever again. If she does come back, she's going to be in that conversation. But then it's Amy Cragg, who ran 221 in Tokyo last year. Not quite as fast as Jordan did in Chicago. And also, she just ran a half marathon at slower than that pace in Prague this spring. So that was a bad day for her. But it's hard to argue that she's better than Jordan at the moment. And then who is Molly Huddle? You know, I guess we'll we'll know more after London next Sunday because if Molly Huddle and Emily Sisson come out and run some phenomenal time, they very much could be say, "Hey, we're better than Jordan." But not, neither of those are going to get top three in London. The field's going to be harder. But I'm I'm going to hold. I guess I should hold off probably instead instead of saying Jordan, I should hold off until after London. Oh come on, John. We don't want to. We don't want to wait two weeks. We all know in sports the hypotheticals and the stuff that doesn't happen. These types of debates are more interesting than actual reality. Um, you know, fascinating thread in the message board this morning. What would Elliot Kipchoge run for the marathon if he was only allowed to run 100 kilometers a week, meaning 62 miles a week? So, yeah, we could wait two weeks, but the big one, obviously, is going to be Emily Sisson. I mean, I guess Huddle as well. Um, and when you compare, I, I was doing this in a little five minutes of prep work before the podcast. You know, if you compare Sisson and Hase, it's pretty interesting. They have very similar college personal bus. It's weird. I, I think that I've been, ex- I was expecting Sisson to be a great marathoner for years because her coach, Ray Tracy, told me that when she was in college, look, she's made for the marathon. And then Hase, no one really saw that coming because she was trying to be a 1500 meter runner for most of her college career. But if you look at their college PRs, um, very similar. Hase ran, um, 1537 and 3146. Huddle ran 50. Assistant ran 1525 and 3138. So she ran 1512 indoors, though. She did. Yeah. But the 10Ks were only eight seconds apart. And if you look at the 10Ks now, now Huddle's assistants run 3049. That's significantly faster than Jordan's 3139. But again, assistant just did that. I don't know, though. We, we know that Hesse's made for the marathon. We don't know that about Sisson. We've been told that she's going to do that. We will find out more in two weeks. But yeah, right now, I think without a doubt, Hase has to be number one. Remember, Shailene, Shailene is 37. So, But the women's trials, if all these, if, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear that Flanagan wants to have surgery because that means she could be in the game for the trials. She needs to have that surgery now, though, because she needs to get going. It's, it's not easy to come back from a big layoff. You know, even Hase showed that. You're not quite at your top form right away. So... We could have Hase, Sisson, Craig, Huddle, Flanagan, and Linden. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six big names. Only three would make the team. That would be great, 
drama. Yeah, that that really would be awesome. And I, I think that this should. You were talking about where this is going to encourage other people. Derek, Chris, Derek. I didn't make this point in the men's talk. He should be improved. Fable was twice a top 15 guy in NCAA cross country. Derek was top like 10, like three times, right? I think all four years he was top 10. Maybe all four. So, you know, I mean, if you're Chris Derek, you got to be thinking, hey, if, if Fable can run 209, I should be able to do it too. Yeah, but Scott Fobble's, I mean, here's the thing. You got to give credit to Scott Fobble for being a really good marathoner. Like, there are a lot of guys who have run in 27s for 10k recently in the u.s well not a lot but there have been some and running 209 the marathon very few of them have been able to do it like he's a very good marathoner he was talking to ben rosario he was crushing all the marathon specific the long sessions in training it's becoming more and more apparent that is his distance and not every guy just because chris derrick has run 2731 or 2730 something you would think he'd be able to run 209 but that doesn't make him a better marathoner than scott fable necessarily all right, should we do some listener audio? Because our listener audio this week is related to Scott Fobble. How about we do that? You guys have not heard this. The listener calls out Rojo and mentions Scott Fobble. This audio was from before the Boston Marathon. But here it is, listener audio of the week. Hey, guys. Just want to say, love the podcast. Work. It's great for easy runs. I love hearing uh, the comedy gold out of rojo's mouth you know i think the podcast medium is great for him it's a guy who can't really type without having a lot of typos he can say what he wants to say and then you know jonathan galt's there to make fun of his factually incorrect comments but uh, really no i i i really uh, appreciate the podcast it adds a lot to the homepage. did want to say you know you guys are shocked that people are voting for scott fauble I think you got to give credit to Hoka NAZ Elite, Ben Rosario. They make all his training public, and they really hype up how crazy his workouts are. I think that's the reason why people are voting for him as their top pick. Um, so I think your average Let's Runner is following these guys on Strava and seeing all their training and um, make them fans and then makes them want to pick them number one. Anyway, can't wait to hear how you guys bash Alberto next week. Robert. Wow. I'm, I'm stunned. I had not yelled in. I don't know what to begin with. I mean, I don't know where to, I was, I had not heard that before. First of all, I, I love the part he was sort of making, saying I was entertaining and I love that part. Obviously it was a boost to my ego, but then he said I was factually incorrect. I claim that nothing I write is factually incorrect. Everything is factually correct. I just get, I try to put the stats, you know, you can present stats to make people think and challenge their views. Um, and he reminded me we haven't bashed Alberto in this thread in, in, in this week. So I don't know where, how we'll have to get that in there. Cause Jordan, was fantastic and her talking about the american record was all about alberto too so so far only praise for alberto but wow i think if we wrote around the tape you almost started to bash alberto earlier i can't remember about what but we might have to go back and check that out and also i just i i say outrageous things so i can entertain and so to make look john look good folks again remember he's a young struggling bachelor who's struggling would we say struggling? I wouldn't say struggling. Yeah, remember last time John was dropping like what hotel he's staying at in Alabama? But everyone, John is at a very difficult time. Brighton Hove Albion, his Premier League soccer team, his boyhood team, the team he roots for more than the New England Patriots, I believe. They may be relegated from the Premier League. Let's have a moment of silence or just kind of we'll talk quiet for a little bit. This could be very bad. We don't ha- we're a small company, let's run.com. We don't have mental health. 
um, resources. And if they get relegated, John might need a couple weeks off. Plus, the World Series champions, Boston Red Sox, are currently in last place in their division. But John, John's he's only he's had a he, what what generation are you, John? Like Generation X, Millennial, or something? I'm a Millennial. Look. The Red Sox won the World Series in October and the Patriots won the Super Bowl in February. No one's going to be crying for me, all right? But yeah, Brighton's current situation is... You, I'm glad you realized that. You've, your entire 20-some plus years of, of adult life have been just uninterrupted Boston success after Boston success. And I was reading an article about how these employees your age like asked for promotions and asked to be the boss after two or three years. Thankfully, you haven't done that yet with us, but um, I'm glad to realize that you know the winter makes the spring all the more enjoyable, John. So... As an Orioles fan, you would know. Well, I guess the second part has yet to come to fruition, but yeah, you're definitely in the winter right now, Robert. I'm kind of like the 209 American that celebrates these obscure stats. The Baltimore Orioles folks had the best record in the American League from 2013 or 2012 to 2016. So I know we didn't win any world titles. We didn't make any World Series, but we were damn good in that regular season when it didn't matter. So I know we were trying to talk about the women's race, but we keep coming back to the men's race since we were talking about Fobble and them and the, the I'll listen to audio. I mean, I guess, John, you read these guys, Strava accounts. I've, I haven't gotten that detailed. So I'm going to have John Kellogg's Strava account. Oh, I'm going to have John Kellogg. I'm going to make him get back in the game, start watching these guys workouts on Strava or whatever they post them. And also he's going to analyze the, the Atlanta course. I did look at the Atlanta course. Well, then the, the hill is only like four or five times. It's not 12. So I, I was looking at all of them, but on our graphic, it cut off at 21 miles because it, there were some pictures or something. Anyway, I know you have not listened to this stat. I've done this research. So Fobble and Ward now are the 20th, 20th and 21st men, American man to break the 210 barrier. Do you have any idea how many Kenyans and Ethiopians have broken 210? I'll make Weldon look bad first. Please determine your, in your head, John. Like It's kind of like Price is Right, so you're going to hear Weldon's. I want you to write it down, John, on a piece of paper right now. How many Kenyans and Ethiopians you do so I can see you put it up to the screen so I know you're not lying about your thing. Let me get a pen. Well, then you think about this. How many Kenyans? This is all time, Robert. This is all time. Yes. Have broken 210 and. Unique Kenyans. Yes. Or Kenyans and Ethiopians. No, Kenyans separately and then Ethiopians separately. Oh, gosh. Ever? Ever. Can someone give me like a little ballpark of how many did it last year? Okay, I'm just going to. I think I'm ready. Okay, he's just gonna go with it. We have twenty Americans. You said now twenty one. Twenty and twenty one. Oh, 21. I got to readjust. Oh yeah. Let me put that in the computer. Ding ding ding. ding, ding, ding. And think. you want to do? Okay. I also have like two hundred six and two hundred eight. Wait 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 wait. Uh, hold on. Okay, and let's do sub two hundred eight. Or do you want to do? All right, I have my numbers. No, I can only do two tens. Okay, I'm ready. All right, Weldon. How many Kenyans? Have broken two ten in the marathon in their in in the history of the world. I feel like I'm going very high. One thousand twelve. John, please put your picture up to the camera so I can see it. Or say it out loud. Seven hundred. John has written seven hundred. Okay, so one thousand twelve and seven hundred. I'm. Damn, like, and I should down. readjust now. Go. I'm gonna go. Okay. One's not gonna readjust. Wow. No, well, I'm not. I'm sticking to my number. Ethiopia, please. Two hundred eight. Weldon's gone from one fifth as many. From from Ethiopia is Kenya? Wow. Four hundred Ethiopia. Four hundred from Ethiopia. Okay. Both of you guys are significantly off. It's the answer well, unless my research is wrong. We'll have John fact check this and we'll get back to you next week if I'm wrong. 
I went to Tillis Job Show and I thought I did it right and had to sort it in an Excel spreadsheet. And the answer is 454 Kenyans. So that's oh cool. shit! I had 550 to begin with, and I changed it to 700. Damn it! Weldon was off by a significant number. So was John, but Weldon was way more off. It's 100 a year now, though. I knew it didn't go back that far. The marathoning booms much quicker, and it's probably a lot of repeat performances. For the Ethiopians, Weldon, Weldon said they're only one-fifth as good as, as Ethiopia. I mean, as uh, Ethiopia is as good as Kenya. He went to 208. Weldon is the winner in this one. It's 187. That seems low to me, like really low. Yeah, but especially because Ethiopia is more populous, more populous than Kenya. Right. I've always said this. There's always like twice as many Kenyans at the 210 range. I've noticed that in the past when I've done these type of research. But the weird thing is, even though Ethiopia is a bigger country, when you go down to like sub 209, the numbers go down to 126 and 323, sub 208, 91 and 204. So there's still more than twice as many um, Kenyans as Ethiopians. But when you go down to 206, and this is what I've always wondered, you always have the battle up top for the goals. And it seems like it's Kenyan Ethiopian. It's pretty well balanced. It's very similar at sub 206. There's 40 Ethiopians, 47 Kenyans, and two Americans. So it's interesting how at the top end of that bell curve, for some reason, it's almost identical, even though at the other levels, it's more than two, 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 two to one Kenya over Ethiopia. You just might have more Kenyans giving the sport a try at that level, whereas the Ethiopians, there might be less, you know fewer barriers to entry in Kenya. I'm just really, I'm just spitballing here. I, I can't really explain it without doing further research. And there's definitely more guys who run in Kenya than Ethiopia. I feel like in terms of, for whatever reason, even though the country's less populous, it'd be interesting to go year by year now, like what the numbers were for last year and see if this overall ratio is the same. Cause I feel like now Ethiopian, the numbers are starting to pick up. I was, I was thinking, um, you know, maybe that it's, I didn't know in Ethiopia, like, most of the runners actually live in Addis and they kind of have to drive out to, to train. I think there's more, like, I was thinking maybe there's more roads and it's harder to find terrain to train on. I was thinking maybe the, the, the income level was higher in Ethiopia and it wouldn't be worth it to be like a 210 marathon there. But it's actually the opposite. The GDP in, in Kenya of Ethiopia is only like $767 per person. And Kenya is only $1,500 a person. So no wonder if these people, that's why I'm saying that poor guy who got beat by Jared Ward for $1,700. That's a year's salary over there. I want him to get the money. Jared, please give it up. Your Mormon faith requires you to give it to that guy. He was he was better than you. He just didn't know where the finish line is. No way, dude. Mormons are like the hardest working people in America. Jared went full 26.2 miles and got it done. The other guy let up before the finish. Did he even let up? I feel like he just didn't even know that Jared was coming. But I agree. Whoever makes it to the finish line is better. That's that's the rule. Kauchi would have been going sub five all the way into the finish. So, Should we have our biggest losers and winners and put yuki down there and Nathan ritzenheim or we'll have a separate article on that we're, we're going to be rating the americans maybe yuki as well from a to f i think coming out soon but um should we talk about all of the famous amateurs that ran th- around three hours yes who was the best celebrity runner at the boston marathon our celebrities are probably different than the pop culture celebrities but we've got it's pretty impressive right especially right around three hours Okay, right around three hours. Here are our contenders. I mean, I guess there's really no point of hiding their times or anything, but it's pretty amazing. We had a lot a lot of people pretty close to three hours. Could be a new reality show for Boston. Pay-per-view could come to the marathon. 
once drone technology gets a little better and we'll trust flying a drone full 26.2 like over the heads of hundreds of runners the favorite the people's champion joan benoit samuelson as they're now saying it's a joke joan benoit samuelson the 1979 Boston Marathon champion and 1983 Boston champion. But she was running 40 years after her victory in 1979 at the age of 61. So Joni ran 304. And she said her goal was to get within 40 minutes of her time of 79, which is 235. So that would have given her 315. She easily did that. But I wonder if Joni's real goal was to break three because she went out in 129.55. And earlier, Robert, you said it's hard to come back from surgery or missing time. She ran the Olympic marathon trial 17 days after knee surgery in 1984. That's just amazing. In 1979, she runs 235. Then 1983, she comes back and runs 222 at Boston. The 1979 time was American record. Yet four years later, she's running 13 minutes faster. That's almost 30 seconds a mile. That's just unbelievably incredible. She was so much better than every other American marathoner back then. That's the thing. She was the Olympic champion Americans were not running 222. Like, didn't she break the world record? If she ran 222 now, she'd be one of the top Americans. Back then, it was pretty much unheard of for a US woman to be running that fast. Yeah, it was crazy. We probably should go in order of celebrity status. Then you have Jimmy Johnson, not the football coach, the NASCAR coach, 43 years old. He's a NASCAR coach? Excuse me, NASCAR driver. Are there NASCAR coaches? Good question, Robert. And this guy trains a lot. So Jimmy runs 309.07 after going out in 131. So they're very close at halfway. With the world at large, those are the by far the two most well-known. But now we'll get into some other people. Let's Run.com poster Gene Dykes, 71 years old. And he beats both of them, 258.50. It's pretty amazing. Guy 71 can do that. And this guy is was has been PRing in the seventies. Like it's not like this guy was a two thirty guy back in the day. I mean, this is nuts. There's a little runner's world video people posted on him on the thread. Shows him running, gives me hope because it doesn't look like he's going that fast and he could kick my ass in the marathon right now. And Gene went out one twenty eight twenty one. So, you know, slightly uh positive split, but a very good run. So those were the three I first had heard about. And well, I don't know. Next guy I shouldn't call a celebrity. He's a convicted murderer. Markel Taylor. He ran 303.52 after going out in 130.04. So all these people sort of in this group were going out at 130 or just around it. Wait, wait, wait. A convicted murderer? How come I haven't seen this on the homepage? We have not put it up yet. He qualified for Boston while serving time in the San Quentin Marathon. He ran 105 laps around. It's a certified marathon. 105 laps around the prison yard. He's been in prison, I think, like since 2000, early 2000s. Court records show he punched his pregnant girlfriend in the face, and, excuse me, in the, in the stomach and killed the baby and was charged with murder and convicted. But I think it's a cool, not that obviously is not a cool story. That's terrible, but we all make mistakes in life, right? And then what do you do with the rest of your life? And some mistakes are way bigger than others, but this guy's in prison trying to turn around his life and running gave him a purpose. And to get out of prison after 15 years and run a, so he ran 303.52. It's pretty amazing. So hopefully he can inspire people who have made mistakes in their life and keep going. And 
to train while serving what was a 15 year to life sentence and be able to do that. It's pretty amazing. Well, I'm not going to lie. So I was watching the broadcast on my multiple screens here and they showed Jimmy Johnson. I kind of knew he was an NASCAR guy. I heard he was going to try to run. I thought I'd read somewhere that he was going to run three hours. And I was like, anyways, I wasn't really know much about it. They show a picture of him. I'm like, that dude looks like he's my age. He also looked like he had a tiny beer gut. I'm like, he doesn't look thin. I'm like, I couldn't break. I don't think I could break four hours. I'm like, how is this guy? And I have a 223 marathon PR. I'm like, there's no way this guy breaks three hours. So when he ran 307, I was like really impressed. Like clearly he's a real runner. I, I now want to hang out with him and go to NASCAR meet. It's like, we're the same age. Does he have kids and stuff? We could do the dad stuff. And he's probably like got a private plane and stuff. Or if not, he could drive me in his car. Like we could be buds. <laughs> Jimmy Johnson, if you're listening, Rojo wants to be friends. Yeah, We're probably relatives, right? So yeah, relatives, everything. <laughs> Long lost cousins. <laughs> Can we make a prediction? Like, talk about pay per view. I think people would like to watch me try to run a marathon or something. As we were doing this, I was trying to figure out. Like, really, what? is there really an audience for that, Rojo? Matt, my run, folks. I, I support the Under Armour. They they bought were bought by Under Armour, so. I have these shoes that like automatically record your distance, or you can use your iPhone, obviously, and, and they'll record it. So sometimes I run with the iPhone. I was looking at my training. Like when I push the stroller, it's like 12, 13 minutes a mile. It's not good. I had to go back all the way to March 23rd, March 23rd to find a run, John, that I ran under 10 minute pace. So March 23rd, there's a badge on my, on my map, my run. It says, it's a badge and it says top 25% because I ran 4.66 miles. So that's, I think that's top 25% of distance for the day or something. And I ran nine twenty four pace. And that was like, I like shoved it down. Like I probably went 12 minutes the first mile and like either eight fifty eight, probably eight fifty eight. the last this mile. This is killing us. Sub nine pace. So it was killing what? what? The young, Robert, remember when we started this website and we'd like mock the masters runners and like, that'll never be us. But we were like mocking, we were mocking like the good master runners, the guys running like 220 marathoners. And now you're like bragging about running 10 minute miles. People are going to, they're going to quit listening. Well, no, I just want the young people to realize it's going to end soon. Don't let it go. And and my wife's actually, my mother-in-law is like, wow, Robert's lost a lot of weight because I was trying to eat like salmon salads for the last week to do my health IQ blood test. So I actually weigh like 179, but it's still like 30 pounds more than what I did when I raced. And I look pretty thin. Like, like, I look better from a sexual standpoint, I think, now than when I was on. Whoa, 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 whoa. So everybody, yes, save on life insurance. Go to letsrun.com slash health IQ. And also, wait, Robert, you're not trying CBD oils. Have you tried CBD oils? No. I, will, that help me, will that help my hip flexibility? My, I can't sit Indian style with a kid in the, in the play group. It might help with pain management. Oh, it's good. Yes. So some people are using CBD oils instead of like ibuprofen. It's helping with some people with recovery. If you guys want certified CBD products, go to Floyd's of Leadville. That's in as in Floyd Landis. Floyd's of Leadville as in the town in Colorado. Floyd'sofLeadville.com. Use code L-R-A-P-R as in April. L-R-A-P-R to save 10%. These are certified CBD products. You don't have to worry about fake CBD products. You don't know what you're getting with a lot of CBD products. Certified CBD products for athletes. Floydsofledville.com. So anyways, I don't want to turn it into me, but someone should email me. Like if I'm running five miles once a week at 924 pace, like what could I run a marathon in? I don't think I could even finish. But I had a brilliant point. What else are we going to be talking about? We've got to rank our celebrity runners first. I need the age of... uh, Markel Taylor. He's been in prison for over 15 years. but He's 46 years old. Wow. 
And we have one more contender. I don't know if this guy counts as a celebrity because he ran too fast. And that's Wired Editor-in-Chief Nicholas Thompson. Runs a 234 PR at age 43. Can we name Nick the hypocrite of the week? Hypocrite of the week. Nicholas Thompson, folks. He's 43. He's almost our age, Weldon. That's very impressive. I mean, 234. And this is the guy that wrote a column earlier in the week entitled, where he said, Boston, quote, it's a terrible course if you want to run a personal best. And then he goes out and runs a personal best. So do you think he was doing the reverse jinx on himself on purpose? Like, I was like, it all depends on the wind. And he's now he's running a PR. It's pretty crazy. Four-minute PR, too. He ran 238 in Chicago. So that's that's some impressive stuff at age 43. Now, I, I've emailed him because I'm going to put his email in our week that was. He's given me permission. I was afraid I was going to have to say, I was going to have to keep him anonymous and say, like, someone who has their own Wikipedia page emailed me and said the following. But now I'm going to put it on there with his name. I'm like, dude, how do you have time to train? Like, he's the editor of this big magazine. He used to edit The New Yorker. Like, And he's like, well, I pretty much just run to and from work. I live five miles from work. And he's like, it doesn't take me that much longer to run in than it would take the subway. And that's just it. He's about 60 miles a week. Into work, out of work, boom, two thirty four. Very, very impressive. And I, I wrote back and I was like, it's fascinating to me. Like all these literary types, like you got Nicholas Thompson, Malcolm Gladwell, who live in New York. David Epstein's a runner. Um, there's a guy who's an agent for books who did Field of Dreams. Chris Paris Lamb. All these guys run in New York, and I'm like, they should have a the great literary New Yorker should start their own track club. And Jonathan and I were joking, and Weldon, they can invite you to be a, a member too with all your journalism at let'srun.com. I'm sure it's right there with Sports Gene and The New Yorker and Gladwell, like Gladwell, Epstein, Weldon Johnson. I can't even run or write like them. No, you need to get in better shape than this. Then they at least let you hang out with them and stuff. Okay, I'll try. I'll try. Yeah, and I didn't think it was possible to PR in the 40s, but maybe we shouldn't be impressed with Nicholas because. Gene Dykes, 70, coming close to his PR, 71 years old. It's just nuts. All, all of them are impressive. Can we, can, we, can we do the new thing like where everybody wins the award? I mean, the most impressive, a 61-year-old woman. That's almost the American record. I think it is. It's debatable whether that's the American record I was reading or something close to it for Joni. Yeah, I think it's between Joni and uh, Gene Dykes for me. 258, age 71. That's ridiculous. It's so good. Now, Earlier with John, we were talking about my body type. Women, if there's any women listening to this podcast, you might want to turn off right now because you're probably going to get angry. Where is this going? <laughs> no. Are you going to deny what you said to me off air? No, go go, go ahead. Say what you have to say. John was annoyed. During the Boston Marathon broadcast, they were talking about the body types of the runners, the various body types. And it was during the women's race. And apparently the social justice warriors went off on Twitter and were like, why are they talking about the women's body types? And the answer to me if, as a journalist is, look, it's the same reason why I'm talking about Jimmy Johnson's body type or my body type. Like it's relevant to running. Like if someone's out, it looks a little pudgy, they're probably not going to run as well. Or if they look too thin, they might have stress fractures. I mean, people may not want me to talk about Jordan who says thinness or like thereof, but I, I don't know. Like what, if I can talk about a man's body type, why shouldn't I be allowed to talk about a woman's body type? I know that there's a lot of eating disorders, but we're trying to treat the sexes equally and there's certain things like that seem to be off limits that just doesn't seem right to me john like you were seemed you were the one that brought this up with me so you're the more sensitive generation explain this to our viewers or listeners 
I don't know. Some women don't like when they talk about other women's body types. I don't have a strong opinion on this. I I didn't re- I saw them put graphics on the screen about men's and women's body types during the Boston Marathon. I don't really know if I have anything else to say on that. I it's a taboo issue for some people. I don't really have any strong opinions. They discussed the body type on the broadcast. I didn't view it as I didn't I don't remember. I don't know exactly what they said, so I can't say whether it was out of line or not, but they listed heights and weights of the winners from past years, average heights, I think, or top ten. I've got two screens on. I wasn't really paying that much attention to it. I did see the 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 image, the graphic that came up on the international feed, and I took a picture of it and I tweeted it out because I loved it. But they're actually talking about the women's race, and they showed the men's graphic, and I thought, wow, maybe they're only talking about the men's average height and weight because women would, you know, it's, not, it's taboo to talk about that. And then I noticed if you look at the bottom in really small print, they have the women's averages. So it was kind of weird on that front, but the men's average weight for the elite top 10 ranked men's marathoners, I guess in the world, they claim in 2017 was 53 kilograms, which is just 116 pounds. And for women, they list an average of 42 to 48 kilograms. Well, 45 kilograms is only 99 pounds. 116 pounds for the men? That seems low. (laughs) That seems low. That can't be right. How much does Kipchoge weigh? These guys aren't that short. I agree with you. 116 is not for a man. That's that's tiny, even for a marathoner. Anyways, but can I read? I know we're jumping around here, but I wanted to read a little bit from Nicholas Thompson's email. After talking about his PR, he said, "Again, he had a start in Corral One. He he was in Wave One, which started two minutes behind the elites, and he wasn't happy about that." "Quote: Please keep hammering the powers that be on the insane policy of starting the elite men two minutes ahead." Not only does it stink for, stink for the sub-elites and make the race feel less democratic, it made the split harder to follow since all the official timing clocks were set at the elite time. It's hard enough to keep your head straight the last couple of miles of the race, but then you also have to deduct two minutes from every 5K mile marker. It seemed absurd. Well put. Couldn't have written it better myself. Did you reconsider? Yeah, it's interesting. That shows Nick was really running hard because when I'm maxed out, I can't think. So you're like, oh, just subtract two minutes. But it's not easy to do. You're just like... You can't even think. You want to. You're looking for a certain time, and then you're like, "Wait, am I? I could just totally see that happening." So, yeah. Do we need to change? I don't know. If you go to Wikipedia right now, they have the like past history. It's like list of open winners of Boston Marathon, but it's no longer an open race. So, do they need to change it in Wikipedia? It's like list of elite race at Boston Marathon. They do. This was the first year that the men have started separately the elite men have started separately from the masses i think ever in boston i'm gonna learn how to edit wikipedia right anyone can do it right john i can become a little editor john is gonna have an interview i think later this week with the winner of the open race so i will put him like they'll have like lawrence toronto winner and we'll put like <laughs> we'll put open no the open race we'll put him there like 2019 champion we'll put the open guy he ran 21854 john trials qualifier 218 21840 steven van gamp We'll put him there, and then below him, we'll put an asterisk, really small print, like maybe six or eight font. Lawrence Toronto won the race with 60 people in it. Yeah, I mean, Stephen is the open winner of the Boston Marathon, if you think about it. He beat how many people are in a wave? Like five or 6,000 people? Yeah, he beat more people than Lawrence Toronto. That's one way of looking at it. Toronto beat like 40 people. It's not even impressive. Scrub. It's like when I won the Marine Corps Marathon, my aunt saw the picture of the start, and there's 20,000 people. And she's like, oh my gosh, where did you start? And I was like, well, on the front row. And she's like, well, no wonder you won. 
So she had a point. Here's seven minutes of bonus audio we have with the men's open champ of the Boston Marathon, Stephen Van Gamplier. We recorded this after the podcast. Also, look for an article on Stephen on Let'sRun.com. Here you are, the bonus audio with Stephen. So we are joined by Stephen Van Gamplier. He just finished 26th in the Boston Marathon on Monday. He was the winner from Wave 1, so the non-elite start, running a huge PR of 218.4D. That's an Olympic trials qualifier PR by almost six minutes. Stephen, congratulations. How are you? How the legs? How are you feeling right now? <laughs> um, the, the legs are pretty trash, but other other than that, I'm, I'm doing pretty well right now. And I guess I'm just most interested in your experience on race day on Monday because this is the first time that we've had the elite field start separate from wave one. What was it like starting the race? What was it like during the race? Just walk me through your. Um. So at the at the start after that that two minute gap um when when I actually started there was uh actually quite a few guys that we took it out pretty fast, which um just given the downhill start uh, I kind of expected uh so I was doing my best to just kind of uh relax and hang back uh I normally try and just run pretty even throughout, so yeah those first first few miles I was just trying to concentrate on making sure I didn't get pulled along uh, faster than I wanted to. Um, ended up uh, ended up kind of settling into a, a group of I don't know I think there's three or four other guys. Uh, I kind of stuck with with that group I think through about ten miles or so, and then um, a couple of them kind of started to fall off, uh, and then. Uh, from from there until about 16, it was uh, just me and one other guy kind of cruising along right next to each other. Um, and then once we kind of uh, hit the hills, uh, it was pretty much uh, me by myself for the rest of the way. Um, yeah, other than other than you know passing by the guys that were coming back to me, uh, yeah the Last uh, last ten miles or so were a bit lonely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you when you would go by them, you would just sort of blow by them because they were starting to die. Or what? You, did you ever run with any of the guys who started a couple minutes ahead of you? Um, not not really. I mean, you know, at, at, when it's later in the race like that, and you know, guys that had a two minute head start, so to speak, or coming back, you know, they're they're obviously probably not feeling quite as well as I was. So, um, yeah, it was basically just, uh, you know, passing by everyone and not really, uh, not really sitting around actually running with them for any extended period of time. And when you found out that Boston was going to be starting it with this way, with only the elite people starting separately and then you have to go start two minutes later how did you find out about this and what was your reaction <laughs> i actually i actually first heard about it because i stumbled across a thread on let's run uh, where that was that was the main topic of discussion and so i i hadn't i don't know i hadn't really looked at any of uh any of the emails or 
uh, entry materials that they had sent out before the race. You know, I, I've done done Boston. This is my fifth year in a row, so I, I kind of know how it works at this point. So I wasn't really paying attention to it that closely and ended up stumbling across that thread and went back and actually looked at some of my stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I guess I'm starting two minutes behind everyone this year. And did that make you mad, or were you like, okay, I'm just going to deal with it? How did you react to it? I mean, I, I I thought it was a little bit disappointing that they decided to do that um, for, I don't know, a couple different reasons. But, you know, it did, I guess at the end of the day, that's, you know, the decision that they made. And, I, yeah, I wasn't extremely happy with it, but... That's what they decided. So yeah, you just kind of have to go out and and deal with it. Do you think your race would have been different on Monday had you all started together and with the elite start? Um, I mean the the main difference, the way I see it, is you know obviously there were there were plenty of guys that made it into the elite field that I I ended up beating. Uh, there's also Plenty in the elite field that I didn't beat, so really the um, the difference to me would have been uh, had the the normal field started at the same time as the elite field. I think it probably would have just allowed for uh, a, a bigger pack to to run with throughout the majority of that race instead of you know really just especially over those last 10 miles, just kind of trying to hang on by myself. And, you know, I think everyone that runs knows that if you've got a nice pack to cruise along with, it, it definitely definitely helps a lot. So, uh, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest difference uh, that, I, that I can see. But. Well, I'm glad that you uh, made the best of that situation, Stephen, still getting the Olympic trials qualifier that's a, that's a huge deal obviously and a, a massive pr so really impressive running and appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today if you want to hear more from steven we're going to have an interview up on let's run.com and an article coming shortly after this podcast posted so stay tuned for that but thanks for the time steven yeah thank you and back to the three-hour marathoners our prison guy markel taylor you know, he had to get a charity bid because he qualified too late after the date. So he was like, and the charity guys start farther back in different waves. So he was like navigating all these five-hour marathoners. So probably wouldn't have made a four-minute difference. Do we know what charity he ran for? We could look it up. I've actually, it's just fascinating you know, to be a, to think about, you know, running next to a murder and stuff. I've actually spent like a week in time in Kenya with a murder. We were on a trip with like five or six people for charity. I donated a cow and a half. Let's run. And then we had like five cows to donate to the people. And they had six people show up. I don't know if it was a scam to get us to give more. So like, they're like, you choose which five get the cow. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And they had them all there lined up in their Sunday best dress. So we ended up buying another cow. I mean, I mean, but anyways, there was a guy there that was just the whole week. He, he seemed like the sweetest human being. And then. I found out he had murdered someone when he was like 19, 20 years old. It blew my mind. It makes me think totally different about everything and rehabilitation and everything. Like I would have had no problem. I mean, before I knew this, like he could have babysat, he could have done whatever. He was a really gentle old man. And when he was in his twenties and his 
wife or partner had left for somebody else or was with somebody else, he, he didn't react well to it. Kind of crazy to think about. Markel ran for the Urban League of Eastern Massachusetts. Good. Like, that's an appropriate charity. I don't know why I would have. I wanted it to be like something that could help, you know, people not prevent, you know, go down his path. So we've done a lot of Boston talk. Do we need to talk about the doper that sent the French national record or anything else this week? Or should we call it a show and get writing on, get, get writing on our A to F rankings of the Americans? I think we should maybe, well, now that you bring her up, Clemens Calvin of France, who, this is a strange story. She was in Morocco and refused to submit to a doping test. That's the story the French do- Anti-Doping Federation is saying. Calvin is saying that People from the French, that basically the drug testers showed up, tried to identify themselves as police. They were not police; they were drug testers, and that there was a confrontation between them. She's trying to sue them because they were getting "quote unquote" violent with her, and she essentially appealed that the fact that she wasn't tested. She said that it wasn't fair. You know, that's not a fair way to suspend her for failing to submit to this test because the circumstances were as they were with the testers getting violent quote unquote and not identifying them properly as testers she was with her young child and her husband in morocco and so she appealed successfully that she could run the paris marathon uh two weeks ago and she ran 220 223 national record for france but the french Anti-Doping Federation is saying, no, that's not actually the story. They identified themselves as testers. She refused to submit to the sample. She should be suspended. And right now it's sort of a he said, he said, she said, but it doesn't look good for her to be. I'm looking at this situation. I feel like it sounds suspicious to me that she wouldn't take a test. Paris was actually this weekend, John. You may not have noticed it just because you were focused on Boston. but And, and she appealed to like she got an injunction from one of the, the highest courts in, in France, like three or four days before the race. It was interesting. A few people apparently were calling her doper in the race. So I thought that was interesting. And actually Jordan has said in NBCSN, everyone calls her Desi. So it's pretty interesting what people call you during a race. Some of it is maybe accurate. Some of it may not be accurate, but um, yeah, I, I think that, I don't know. I mean, this is me and this is the biases I have, but when I hear that she's in Morocco, I immediately think doper. Because they've had they had so many doping tests when the when the EPO test came out. I mean, it was unreal. And I've heard people. We had a guy living with us in Flagstaff, right? Well, way back in the day, he said he trained in Ethiopia, he trained in Morocco, and he said the difference between there was night and day. He said at, 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 in Morocco, people would openly have like needles, just stick a needle in the side of their of their leg at practice. And he said in Ethiopia, it was kind of like America, whereas you know sometimes Walt and I'd be running around, we'd be joking like. If we were feeling good, we'd be like, oh, I'm on drugs today, you know, kind of laughing around, that type of thing. And he said that was kind of what he felt like it was um, in Ethiopia. I mean, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, I know. But I'm like, I, I, first of all, I just want to hear why was she in Ethiopia a few weeks before the race? It seems like if I was going to go hide out. Morocco. I mean, excuse me, Morocco. Like, If I was going to go hide out from the drug testers, I would certainly go to Africa where I'm much, much less likely to be tested than I would be in France, probably. That makes it suspicious. John, I think you made a good point off air. John's like, look. There's two scenarios here, which if I told you before, which is more likely that someone goes to Morocco because they're on drugs or to get drugs and then avoids a test because they're a doper. And if you refuse a test, that's the suspension or 
B, they're in Morocco training legitimately. The testers sort of identify them as police and are quote unquote violent with you and you're totally innocent. Like which one of those is more likely? Obviously I think that the doping scenario is more likely. I agree with you, John, but I, I don't know. I can see, I mean, does she speak the local language? What language is this all done? I can see someone saying police and doping and you get confused. It, maybe their language is French in Morocco, right? Oh, well, so, okay. Then there's, there's not a language barrier. Like I could, I could, I could, it seems less plausible her story. They official language Arabic Berber, but they also speak French as well. So I guess it sort of depends. If you're trying to say I'm an official, like, oh yeah, or is it a local doping official or is it a someone who flew in from France? So like, there's a lot of uh, the details that maybe we should try to get someone on from like like keep next week who could tell us the, the, the story. But fascinating, really. I mean, really fascinating. Are the doping officials going to have to start wearing body cams? Be a little bit problematic because. In case you guys didn't know, if you get a doping test, you have to turn. And if you're a man, children, cover your ears, show your penis to the person, and he watches you pee in the cup. So I guess we'd have to turn off the cameras at that point. It's Maybe it'd be like the cops. I saw some cops in the subway yesterday. Some, they had dogs, and I was talking about their dogs, and then they had their cameras. I said, hey, is that, are you guys recording me right now? They said, no, 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 only when we arrest you. So it could be the reverse. When they show up for the test, they're recording, and then they turn off when you actually give the sample. So when we talk about the Castro-Semenya debate and all these people who talk about the invasive, she had to prove she was a woman. Weldon has to show a toping test to his penis. Yeah, we could do the body cam probably before the test just to you know, show the interaction with the penis and then turn it off when you're actually doing the test. I think that's a genius idea. Body cams before and after the test. Because there's always they always have when people complain about, the like Asbel Kiprop, he's saying this is what happened. I, you know, the procedures weren't followed. I think it makes it easier if you have every tester with a body cam. You can say this is exactly how it played out from my perspective, and you have proof. Yeah. So, guys, obviously we have London in two weeks, but we got some interesting administrative stuff coming up. We're going to have this French case to follow all the time, and I'm fascinated by it. We're going to have the Asbel Kiprop doping case coming soon, I think. And then we're going to have the big one, the Casar Semenya, and also add in Francine Osaba. Breaking news this morning, Francine Osaba. Well, depending on how you read it, but the AP is reporting that she's said she's hyperandrogenous. Not a surprise. Jonathan, Weldon, and I all knew that. I would go and say that if I had to bet my life, I would say Pamela Jolimo was also of this same condition. You know, when you're born, when you're competing in the women's category, you now they don't have a penis. So I, I think that they, if they were going to compete, if you had to choose either or, they would be in the women's category. But to me, if you're intersex, it's a difficult story. We don't have time to go into that right now, but this breaking news. We'll be having that story to follow all spring as well. It's kind of a uncomfortable topic to end the show with, but um, guys, it was a great week. I really enjoyed the last hour of the Boston Marathon telecast. I thought they were riveting action, really dramatic races. It was a fantastic week, fantastic races. So good to see Fobble and Ward under 210. So good to see Jordan Ward, Jordan Hesse back at it and motivated. Great race, and that's really the appetizer. You know, we're at a five-star restaurant, guys. We just had a magnificent appetizer. Everything is great. And then the entree is coming out. It's going to be served in London next Sunday. Jonathan Gott will be there providing us all the inside info. Can't wait. Thanks for joining us. For Weldon Johnson and Jonathan Gold, this is 
How was I described by that guy in the audio? Charming? Typos. Can't spell a sentence correctly. <laughs> yeah. Constantly corrected by John Gold. This is the Prince and They can't speak. Can't spell. Can't even speak or spell correctly. Even though I was the regional spelling bee champion in sixth grade. Robert Johnson signing off. Good night. And thank you for joining us.